You're listening to First Fossil. Hello and welcome to First Basel, a show where we learn together how to take that first basel toward becoming the best versions of ourselves. My name is Candace Olushala, and today's special guest is a friend of my older brother's, and he connected us. We actually met through Clubhouse, and I keep telling y'all, y'all need to get on Clubhouse because you meet a lot of people there that are pretty cool. So get on that, okay? And so we connected through Clubhouse, through my brother, and she's pretty cool from what I've heard. And, you know, she's done work in Kenya and Zambia with uh, sexual violence. So I'm actually really excited to hear her first Basel experience and share that with you guys. So without further ado, please welcome Nicole Lim. Hey girl, how you doing? Hello. So good to finally connect and all on your podcast as well. Yes. I'm so glad you could be on here because Kevin has talked highly of you. So I'm, I'm honored, honored to meet you and, you know, in video because, you know, (laughs) pandemic, it'll be in the flesh one day. Yes. (laughs) And, you know, just to connect with you and hear a lot about you. So how have you been? How has it been during the pandemic for you? What are you up to these days? Yeah, I mean, these days it just looks like transitioning from my bed to the desk, to Zoom calls, to running errands for family, to more Zoom calls, to emergencies in the middle of the night because I work on East Africa time. So it's just a slew of multiple things. Yeah, so I'm working morning and evenings, um, but also just trying to figure out a better rhythm because we've been in this pandemic for over a year now and our team is really feeling the weight of not of not knowing, right? The the weight of uncertainty, the weight of government mandates that are ill-informed and uh, lack of health education and awareness to our communities also um, is creating just a surge of anxiety. And so leading in that for over a year um, has caused a lot of tension for all of us. So we've seen a need to just unify now more than ever. And that's just really my goal is like, well, we can't control our governments, we can't control this pandemic, but we can nurture our relationships, even when we're not together. Mm, I love that. I love that. That's really a positive outlook to kind of flip everything that we've gone through and see a brighter light to things and how we can move forward and progress together. So that's really cool. Yeah, notice notice what we can control because there's so much that we can't, right? That's true. That is true. And I think it brings gives us a little bit less anxiety to realize that there are things that we still have control of versus Mm -hmm. looking at all the things that we don't. So that's actually very calming after such an anxiety provoking 2020 and part of 2021, too. (laughs) Right. (laughs) Yeah. So tell us a little bit about yourself. What do you do? What are your, you know. What are your highlights of life for you? Yeah, so um, I am a recent author um, sharing experiences of leadership and changing my career over the past 10 years from moving from filmmaker to a nonprofit director. Um, 
over 10 years ago, I started an organization in Kenya and Zambia equipping survivors of sexual violence and leadership. And so I've been doing that work for the past 11 years now, learning from communities of survivors and, and establishing ways to uplift and platform their vision, their voice and their leadership to create a better world. And um, that's, that's what I do. Uh, I do a lot of speaking, preaching, um, podcasting, even um, around themes of my book. Um, to hopefully bring a new type of leadership paradigm to organizations, churches, academic institutions, um, to kind of flip the script and to um, consider a more bottom-up approach to the way um, international development work is being taught and being implemented. Um, so that's, yeah, part of my passion. I like that. That's that's amazing, by the way. I. Now I'm super curious on how we went from filmmaking to the nonprofit, but yeah, talk um, about the first paso, right? Yeah, right, exactly. I'm like, well, how do we? What happened here? There's so, such opposite right. ends of the spectrum, but can still be kind of related too. So, how can you can you unpack your first paso experience? Because this this is already fascinating just from the the intro blurb of what you do, <laughs> I, I definitely need to hear how, how this transition happened and how it's been impacting you. Yeah. Well, I mean, I love that your podcast is called the first bustle because it's like, well, what was the first bustle actually, you know, because everything evolves and there's multiple steps to even get to that first bustle. And also there are many steps leading after that, that become new new steps every time, right? And so everything is a first step, actually, in my experience, because the world is evolving just as we as humans are evolving. And so with that evolution, everything's new, every experience is new, and every um, experience that we delve into uh, is, is not known. That's actually the point of taking those first steps, right? To delve into something that's unknown. So I'm even trying to think what would be considered that first step. Um, I think when we talk about, um, okay, so it was never my intention to, to start a nonprofit in Africa. I was actually very critical of those people, those Americans that were going to Africa to start nonprofits because they felt that it was the, the best thing to do. And, and I was always very averse to that, which is why I um, was doing uh, international development work with existing organizations in um, their marketing department. And so I was consulting with um, many very renowned, huge organizations um, doing their storytelling work. And I was contracted in different projects here and there, different countries here and there. And as I was going in and out of homes, in and out of countries, in and out of villages, for very short periods of time, it felt like it was really unfair for me to sit with these mamas and these children and these people who've experienced vastly different um, upbringings than I have and expect them to reveal their deepest, darkest secrets to me on film for the sake of marketing for the organization. Wow. And so going in to just capture it and then leave without any sense of 
relational um, responsibility and even, you know, responsibility in terms of what then is my role besides my role to the organization, because I didn't know if the organization was truly following up with this person. I didn't know how long that relationship was lasting with the organization. I didn't know how long the organization had been helping them prior to me coming in to interview them. And so it felt very insufficient. And especially as I was hearing more stories of issues of sexual violence, the similar uh, narrative of issues of sexual violence um, where girls were more vulnerable to sexual violence due to lack of access to education, um, it really haunted me and it really challenged me to think of a different way to utilize storytelling, not as a means of exploitation or service to the organization that was, you know, the big name, but an actual service to the people who's, who were the actual storytellers. Um, it wasn't me telling their story, it was them telling their own story and me finding a creative way to leverage it. And so really shifting the way that we um, utilize storytelling was um, something that I was wrestling with. And so um, when we talk about the first step, it's like, I think the first step is recognition of what is not right within the world. What is, what is, what is it that I had to offer that might be a different or unique or um, nuanced approach, um, non-traditional approach, and how do I, um, I guess, wrestle with that reckoning in a way that doesn't lead to paralysis and guilt, but in a way that leads to restoration and transformation. So um, in the wrestling, um, I had to really also consider uh, the pathway of me and my ancestors and how we even got to this point. And in recognizing how both grandparents on both sides of my family uh, fled communism and war and famine to um, build a better life for their children. And had I not been given that opportunity to have a wealth of access of resources, also to have a wealth of access to education, which is a huge um, priority for my culture, also your culture. Um, like to be given that privilege to access resources was like, was felt very unfair. And so as I was hearing more stories of girls around the world, that access to educational resources, just simply because they were a girl, right? was limited or even unattainable in many instances. And so when I was reflecting on my own history, I'm like, why was I so lucky to finish high school, to finish college, to not have to fight to pursue whatever vocation I wanted, to be given um, the blessing from my parents to even go the creative route, right? A lot of families in our cultures uh, expect us to become the doctors and lawyers and acupuncturists and business people move up in the world um, so that your family never has to suffer from poverty again. At the same time, where does that leave room for creativity and the arts and um, different ways and different perspectives of, of pursuing vocation? And so because I was kind of blessed to kind of pursue whatever vocation I wanted, I also felt that that was a responsibility to then give a choice um, and open up a world of opportunities to girls who may not have had that. Um, so I think that was the first step is the recognition of the disparity, 
and choosing a different pathway for myself so that it might open up a, a new pathway for someone else. Mm. That's really, that's really beautiful. And did you, did you feel like you were abandoning your first passion when making this transition? Or did you feel like you felt equipped because of your artistic eye to do it not only artistically, but tastefully? Hmm. Yeah, I wouldn't, I think abandonment is a strong word. I think too, because the way that I was brought up, it's like pursue your passion pursue your calling. And of course, initially I thought my calling was in documentary filmmaking and the international development work that I was doing through the storytelling lens. At the same time, I see it more as evolution. It's like, had I not done all of that traveling and all of that in and out of homes and consulting with major conglomerate organizations, I wouldn't have been able to see, right? All of those perspectives to find a different way. Um, so I needed that experience to inform me for the next step, which then became a, I think, opening of my actual vocation. And I think vocation can evolve too. So every step that you take opens up a new pathway, right? I didn't expect mm -hmm. it to open up into a new career pathway, um, but it was a pathway that actually gives me much more joy and fulfillment than, um, I can imagine. I really like that. And, you know, I feel like because we both come from cultures that, like you said, are very limited, I guess, in what direction they expect each generation to take based on where the families came from and where they expect mm -hmm. the families to go. So how was the experience of coming to that realization for yourself and going, I think this is, I think this is more of where I need to go versus where I was going. How did you explain this to your family that you were making these transitions and how did they, how did they take what you had told them? Yeah. So I'm third generation. Are you second or I'm, first? I'm first generation on both You're sides of my generation. family. Okay. Mm -hmm. Oh, wow. Okay. So I'm third on both sides. So with that, there's different expectations, right? And so I think that's why also the, exploring the creative um, realm was okay. Also, because my mom is, is a creative. So she kind of went through all that hell with her parents. So because right. she went through it, then for me, it was like, oh, yes, of course, it's fine. So she won't give me hell for that. But there was hell for uh, doing something that was completely counter to my education. So I studied film production in a private university mm -hmm. and all that money and resources and time, you're just going to throw that away and do this thing that you don't know how to do. Um, and of course it sounds really stupid. Um, and I did it right after college too. So of course it was like, I barely had time to even build that career from, you know, the, the, what I had studied in school. And so it was hard where, um, of course, the, the financial viability was very limited. Uh, but at the same time, my parents knew that I had to kind of find that on my own and struggle along the way and make the mistakes along the way. It wasn't until two years later where I uh, spoke at a conference with a 
leading um, pastor speaker that my parents actually really admire on the poster of that conference was like that guy's face and then me. And then my parents were like, how'd you get there? And I'm like, I, I don't know. I, I'm just, you know, doing what I'm supposed to do. And that's when they actually heard my story of transitioning for the first time of why I decided to leave documentary filmmaking mm-hmm. and, and starting a nonprofit um, and advocating with survivors. So when they heard that for the first time, I think on a public platform, that's when they realized that this vision that's been given to me, this calling that I have is so much bigger than me and bigger than them and their ideals of me mm-hmm. that they had to surrender it just as much as I had to surrender it. So it wasn't yeah. without struggle. It wasn't without tension. It wasn't without, you know, um, yeah, a lot of failures along the way. I think the other thing that I'm recognizing with the generational um, differences is, you know, first generation is the, is the refugees the ones that have escaped, the ones that have come from, you know, my grandfather, my dad said came over with $5 in his pocket and uh, built the barbershop from $5. Um, And then the second generation is forced to assimilate um, in in more Asian um, experience, assimilate so that you can get in and then rise above. And so um, there's a loss of a lot of culture and language there. Um, and keeping your head down so that you can work hard and move Mm -hmm. your way up so that you can then bring the family out of poverty for the next generation. So that's my generation. So third generation is the assimilated Asian American um, uh, or Asian born uh, or American born Chinese, as we call us, um, that has already experienced the sense of assimilation that we can integrate a lot easier into mainstream white culture. Um, And so because of that, the expectation is, yes, pursue your dream, but ensure that there's still financial viability for the generations to come so that we don't go back to the poverty of the parents because it was still only two generations away. So what I'm seeing is first generation is coming from war. Second generation is assimilating into success. Third generation is born into success. We don't know poverty, but Mm. we hear the stories of our grandparents because my grandparents were still living. And so because we hear those stories, we're trying to reconcile how is it that they grew up in this uh, violence and and oppression and political um, uprising and issues, and how is it that I was born into such success and wealth and assimilation? They're not meshing, right? And so as I and many others in third generation are trying to reconcile that we're trying to find a new way to not continue, not to not only continue um, kind of keeping our head down and working hard and, and not saying anything about injustice, but to now use our voices and our vocation and our careers um, to fight against what has culturally oppressed all of us, right? And so I, I see that for um, a lot of Asian Americans, there is a call to realize, you know, we've been able to get by in many ways because of the assimilation and because of mm. cultural silencing that kind of has benefited our culture in many ways. At the same time, it's also made us um, unable to speak up against violence and injustice. And so that's where I think our, our, our challenge is, is to realize that the wealth that we've built is for the sake of building wealth and success for others, not just our own. Right, 
Right. That is very, that is very interesting. I, I did speak with a friend of mine who he's, I think he's second, second or third generation Asian American as well. And how those, how each generation is different from the generations before. And sometimes that disconnect, like you said, where it's like, how, how do I relate what my parents or my, even my grandparents went through and connected to what I'm experiencing as a pretty much full-blood American born and raised that's all I know and not have real issues compared to what they experienced have you have you connected the stories that you're learning with these girls in Kenya and Zambia and what you've heard your ancestors go through with how how you are able to how you're able to look at the lens of even what's happening with um AAPI brutality here in America are you are you do you feel like you have a voice in those things because of what you're working in now and understanding that people are often abused even, you know, in our country, outside of our country, but then also seeing the hardships from your grandparents and, you know, and at least hearing their story. Do you, do you feel like you relate to those things because of that? Like you have more of a voice than maybe other third generation Asian Americans would in this country? I think um, every experience is so unique, right? And so the experiences that I carry are definitely the ones of my ancestors um, together with the international community of Kenyans and Zambians who have been formed the way that I see the world. And, um, and I think where it comes to the API brutality, like that really, that really shook me up because of understanding again how the um violence of patriarchy oppresses oppresses us all in different ways and so really what it is what it comes back to is just fighting against um the the toxic patriarchy that silences women and doesn't allow women to pursue their dreams and their goals, to have autonomy over their bodies um, and to move forward as um, leaders of themselves and leaders of their communities. So I think that's where a lot of that similarity lies. Um, and I think that's what I've learned too in um, a lot of the African contexts that I've worked in. It's like the matriarchs are the ones that are doing all the things, mm-hmm. but why don't they have the sense of autonomy and authority, even though they're the ones actually leading their communities? Right. You know? And so learning from that, observing that, I'm just seeing that even more so globally, we need to come into a sense of equity um, so that we're not continually bringing harm to um, the generations after us, to this current generation, generations before us, and then generations after us. And so there is a necessity to look back into our history so that we can understand who we are and how 
our privilege of today, especially for myself being born into the Western world and having, having all the privileges of that, um, how that requires a response and a responsibility to others who don't have that. Um, and I think that's where my cultural background as a Chinese hyphen American brings a nuanced perspective of how to lead differently in African contexts. And so um, the collaborative approach is, is necessary. Mm, yeah. Yeah. I, I, I do, I see that. And, you know, I, I like that you're able to recognize that how you get to view what's happening here is kind of unique, I think, compared to maybe other third generation Asian Americans because of all of the different opportunities you have to see how actually how, even though we're in a Western society, how various societies outside of the U.S., and the U.S., how they actually can relate to each other. I think not a, not a lot of people have that those opportunities to see those connections, and so everything seems so far away, and it's it's happening over there to outside of our eye. So our own experience here seems magnified and blown up, but in the grand scheme of things, it's like actually I can relate to some of these people that. No, their situation might not be the exact same thing, but it's relatable. I can, I can process that. Um, you know, I, I think I, I feel similarly with, you know, for myself as a, uh, you know, first generation born in America kid and having immigrant parents that were not in America very long before I was born. you know, seeing, seeing things that they've experienced and hearing things that they've experienced or their, you know, their parents may have come here a little bit before them, whatever, but there's, there are these situations that when I get to listen to or watch it happen and then recognize that I have a privilege that my parents and my grandparents didn't have by being born in a first world nation, but also as someone who's considered a minority. And you kind of feel like a bridge, I guess, where you you can make opposite generations make sense to one another because you're kind of in the middle of those things and it kind of just opens up my worldview to be able to relate to different pockets of America that most of my friends can't process relating to or they they can't they cannot see it like they they don't see how there there's so many similarities in various groups that are really struggling even with like you said, women, the patriarchal systems of not just America, but the whole world are constantly encroaching on the 
flourishing experiences that women and young girls mm -hmm. can and should have. Right. Mm -hmm. It's killing us. Mm -hmm. it, it is. It literally actually physically, mentally, emotionally, spiritually is mm -hmm. killing us, suffocating us out. And it's a constant battle. So now, you know, you see women in America, whether even white women in America struggle with it too, but black women, Asian, Amer Asian women, Latino, Latinas, right. Just trying to have a seat at the table to have an education, or if you do get the education to be viewed as though you got the mm -hmm. same education as your male counterparts, mm -hmm. you know, but then you go to other places and you see that for a female to have education is it's not necessary, right? Like, why, why do you need an education when you're going to be a wife and a mother and you're going to cook and clean and that's it. That's all you're going to do. Right. So the idea, it's a huge threat to the entire society in other locations for women to even think to have an education of any kind, right? Because you're trained to do and be something in someone else. We might not have that extreme in America, we do in some pockets and some people don't realize this, but we do because cultures from all over the world are here. So people bring their mentalities and religious, them. religious cultures too. Yeah. Exactly. We have so many different religious groups that come and are in our tossed salad of America, you know, and people, uh, there's this idea that when people come to the States that they just adopt this American way, which it's hard to say if there is an American way, because it's a conglomeration of so many different things and people and experiences and cultures and religions and beliefs. And it's just this, you know, this bag of just stuff, right? How we can connect those things, how we can see what's going on across the water and go, oh my goodness, I get that. Like, that might be a worse situation than what I'm experiencing here, but I get it. It's the oppression. People can experience oppression of any kind everywhere, right? And for you, you kind of get to see it through the lens of allowing people to have this platform to not only share something that's probably very therapeutic for them, but also gets to present a worldview that other people really need to realize that we're not as different from one another as we might think because we're not up close enough to see what those similarities are and even if those similarities are painful at least I can go but I I can sit in your pain with you because I've been there maybe not exactly there but like I've I've been in that kind of oppressive painful situation where I can at least go I, I can empathize here. Right? right. And we're, I think we're suffering in that area, especially after the pandemic, something as simple as the virus is not just affecting Americans, but it's affecting those in India who are still dying at an alarming right. rate and they can't, they're not stopping. We haven't found the break system to help India yet, or in Brazil or in Ecuador or in Australia is back on a lockdown. Like the idea that I can be where I am, I can be first generation, I could be 
10th generation American. I can just be in my country, hunky-dory. I'm hearing all these things in my country. I think it's all political. And yet it's not because people are experiencing something that we're all having to combat maybe differently because of the context of the countries that we're in or the locations within the countries that we're in, but we're still fighting the same, the same battle. Right. So it's just, I, I like that you've, even though some of those opportunities I'm sure are hard to have to, to listen to, right. To, to recognize that people are going through what they're going through, these girls that are experiencing sexual violence and things, but to have that heart to lean into it, knowing that it's going to bring about a change that needs to, to happen in the world. I, I love that your creative eye and your attentive ear for that drew you enough to say, I can put what I studied down because I know I can do something greater over here and I'm willing to, I'm willing to take that risk. And now you're like a decade or more out of, you know, past, past that or into it and you're still going. Yeah. I would say that that's like another, another first step, right? Of leaning into the stories and leaning into the pain um, to see what opens up from that, right? So if the first one of, you know, the first step I mentioned was reckoning and the reconciling the tension and um, understanding that there could be something different and a different approach, then the next step would be then to lean into it, to not be afraid Mm -hmm. of it, despite what cultural perception or parents or um, society tell you. Um, and I think that's where many girls around the world and, and even here, um, they are ridiculed for having the power of choice mm. or desiring a power of choice, right? And it shouldn't be, right? Like women should have the power of choice to pursue whatever damn dream or career they want to pursue. Yeah. And when women are able to move forward in that, I think that's where we're going to see a better society because that does contribute to, like you said, the flourishing of all humanity. If everyone could be living in their purpose, living in their calling, if they're allowed to, I think that's where we'll see a better world. Yeah. Yeah. I, it would, I think we're moving in that direction a little bit more strongly than we were before globally which is really nice to see. And it's cool that you kind of get to be the hands and feet of a lot of what allows that momentum to keep going. Do you find that some days it is harder than you would have expected? And do you ever, do you ever regret having stepped away from film and doing documentaries or does the, do those hard days just give you more desire to keep going? Mm. So to your, to your second question of, do I regret um, transitioning careers? Or do I miss anything about film? No. So my, my dream in college was um, to work for a National Geographic, of course, who's 
you know, every photographer's dream is sort for Nat Geo. Um, so that was part of my, my goal of expanding my portfolio and having a diverse uh, portfolio so that I could eventually apply to Nat Geo, you know? And um, now, you know, now if I were given that job, I would not want it because it doesn't allow me to actually see the transformation that takes place in my work. Because I would be doing the same thing that I felt was unfair, going in and out of homes, in and out of places, traveling here and there. I would be so exhausted in a different way. I think more physically exhausted um, and also emotionally unsettled, knowing that it, it, it is unfair to just go in and capture a story and then leave. I think the leaving is privilege. And um in a lot of the survivors that I've met, especially when we were just starting, they expected me to leave as many American organizations do. They come right. in for a couple months, couple years, get them through one set of their education and leave right after. Cause we fund high school, the associate's degree and the bachelor's degree. Wow. So there's three tiers that our girls can go through. And that's rare, especially higher level ed uh, scholarships is, is very rare. Um, and so because I was trying to build this long-term relationship, it, it took a lot of time to build the trust to, so that the community trusted me. I learned more about the cultural context of the community so that we can build this organization together and move forward in the long-term. Um, that's everything for me, seeing the decade of relationships um, formed, lives completely moving from being unable to speak up and say your name to now speaking and speaking on public platforms. I've even had two of my alumni speak on UN affiliated platforms and even virtual platforms in front of thousands of people. It's like, they weren't like this in high school, you know, but to see that transition happen for them uh, is everything. Mm. And I think, um, well, I believe in my experience that for every passion, like passion, right? When you think of passion, um, the, the root of the word is actually suffering. Mm. Passion is suffering. Yeah. And it goes together. You cannot pursue your passion or your calling without suffering, mm. unfortunately. Yeah. And the suffering, actually what I've learned, and I wrote about this in my book, the suffering begets more love. So when you suffer alongside of a suffering humanity, um, the, the shared suffering is what moves us forward to relating to each other better in, in our common humanity that suffers and in a common solution to alleviate it. And that's mm -hmm. where I think love is formed um, in pursuing health and wellness and healing with the suffering humanity. Um, healing happens, yes, individually, but it also happens in community. And I believe that the community that we've established in my organization um, is part of that healing balm. Yes, we provide, we, we fund out lots of money for scholarships, leadership development programs, transportation to and from school, to and from programs, to and from the office, all of these things. But the core of, what keeps all of these resources together is the community of belonging 
where mm -hmm. everyone in our community has suffered some form of sexual violence or know someone who has. And we're all there for the same reason, to become leaders and advocates against, against it, informed by survivor-centered solutions. And so being in a space where we all are there for the same reason, that's the sense of belonging, knowing that you're not alone and moving forward in that. And um, unless you understand the stories of suffering, I don't think there could be a lasting solution, which mm -hmm. is again why I believe survivors of sexual violence need to be leaders in their own healing journey and healing process because they're the ones yeah. that suffered the violence. My role is to support them in that process, giving them the education they need, giving them the leadership tools they need, giving them the platforms they need, um, encouraging them as they need um, so that they can find their own pathway. Mm. Uh, that is, I, I have not thought of it like that, but there is something about suffering and suffering with that really brings up the love and the empathy that needs to come out. And that might also be why we're not always seeing that because people kind of suffer in their own worlds and then they sometimes they compete um whose suffering was more valid mm -hmm. or you know mm -hmm. you know was actual suffering compared to someone else's suffering and yet when when you can relate with the suffering that you that you've had or if you've just happened to be in the presence with someone in the midst of their suffering and you're witnessing it it does it does bring about this yearning almost this draw towards to want to either reconcile it heal it or give it air like expose it so others can be released from their suffering you know it's bittersweet but it's very I think it's necessary to be in the midst or to be in the midst of suffering to release others from their suffering. There's something that is very special about having experienced it as unfortunate as it is, but there's something about the keys that people that have experienced it have compared to even those who are just coming in as, you know, I'm an eyewitness or I've heard your story and I just resonated yeah. to it. But when you've met someone who has the, the very key that you're looking for because they they experience that experience, it's a different unlocking, you know, mm -hmm. that people that people go through when they have connected with others that have been, if not exactly, mm -hmm. they're very quite close to it. Um, yeah, I like your key analogy. Uh, my book is called Liberation is Here. <laughs> so kind of saying that liberation is actually here. It's not that we're trying to find it. We're not trying to create it. We're not trying to go off somewhere over there to get it. It's here within the communities that have experienced the most violent forms of suffering. They hold the keys. And I would add to what you're saying is to yeah unlock um, 
unlock something of freedom for those who've experienced it, but it's also for the, the, the survivor too, I've observed. Yeah. It's this mutual freeing um, that happens in tandem when those stories of suffering, suffering are shared. Yeah, that is, that is also very true, which makes it worth using, using your keys wisely, you know, cause it's not, it's not just for all the people, but it's also for you, you know, mm, yep. um, right. it's, that's so nice. So, you know, for people listening that might be either sensing they need to transition into something that's totally different from what they were doing, or maybe it's similar, but it's just an unexpected transition or now they're past that transition. They're in the midst of having gone through that recognition stage. What advice do you give someone who's trying to figure that side of their lives out? And how do you encourage them to, to lean in? I think the first thing I would say is to be unafraid to lean into the pain and suffering of the world and your own story. Um, I think that's also part of what found me in my work was kind of having to lean into the stories of others through my work. I was neglecting my own pain and suffering because of that comparative suffering issue of like, well, I haven't experienced anything like that. So therefore I dim my own suffering. But in actually leaning into the pain and suffering in the world and your own pain and suffering, I think that's where true healing can happen in collaboration. So be unafraid to lean into it because something will emerge um, that's freeing for, for yourself and for those that you're, you're working with or moving to work with. Um, another thing that I would say is to sit in uh, the silence and mystery of everything that you don't know. I know in my, my former, like more earlier season um, in my early 20s, I wanted to listen to everyone's advice to do the right thing. Mm. And I was also very much pressured by my own culture of like being an Asian woman and saying things a certain way or doing things a certain way or pursuing certain careers and not other careers and how I sit and how I dress and how I walk and how I talk. Like, you know, when you're an ethnic minority, you represent all of them, <laughs> right? And, and so that, right? And so that weight and that burden sometimes will paralyze you and blind you um, from seeing your true self because you're seeing yourself in the eyes of your aunties and uncles, um, mm -hmm. which I think is, could be a gift, right? Because you have that ancestral heritage that you are informed by and that communal mindset that you're informed by. At the same time, uh, understand that your path may, pathway might be different. And so, yes, you can be informed by it, but it shouldn't dictate how you pursue or don't pursue your vocation. So when I was in my early 20s and I was wanted to listen to the advice of others, I was listening to others that I wasn't, so much so that I wasn't listening to myself. Mm. And I was listening to others because I wanted to do the right thing, believing that there was only one right pathway. But actually, there may not be one right pathway. And so if there's multiple pathways open to you, whatever way that you go, um, it will evolve into the next thing. So like, as you say, the first step will evolve into the second step and the third step. And maybe you'll backtrack 
but you won't backtrack to the same place you were before. That's for Mm. sure. And every pathway that opens up to you is right. Um, And even if it feels wrong, or even if you made a mistake, again, you're making that mistake learning from the more uh, experienced version of yourself that didn't know that information beforehand, right? So you've gained information and you're actually moving forward in the next step, uh, more informed, more wise, um, with more clarity and hopefully hopefully a little bit more empathetic and compassionate and gracious along the way, realizing mm-hmm. that, hey, we, we make mistakes. Other people do too. And so therefore our leadership um, can look different in a more empathetic and compassionate lens. Mm-hmm. Um, so with that, I would say always lead with empathy and compassion. Yeah. Um, for the sake of others, knowing that the liberation of others is also your liberation. And so moving away from the American Western idealism of personal success and personal wealth and independent thinking, it doesn't work that way. It doesn't. You will die alone and rich (laughs) Mm -hmm. or alone with, you know, with all the accolades, um, but no sense of community. And so Um, what I've come to find is that liberation in tandem means, um, ensuring that whatever career that you pursue or whatever, whatever vocation that you're pursuing is for the sake of someone else. Yeah. I think that's where purpose is found. Mm -hmm. It's hard to find purpose and it be for you. I don't think you can have purpose and it be just for yourself. Mm. Purpose by default is for others, mm-hmm. you know? And so being able to go on that journey of, like you said, recognizing that your pain and suffering is not invalidated because others have had different or more egregious pain and suffering than you, but that being able to recognize what that is within yourself, go on that healing journey and liberation journey for you. And that might be in being a community with others who have suffered, you know, and doing that journey together, maybe not by yourself, but reaching that moment, I think allows us to be able to better see clearly what that purpose is to go out and do for others with all the keys that we have to unlock so many shut doors mm-hmm. in the world that are just waiting for that key to unlock it, you know? So I love, I love that advice to really lean in and don't be afraid to take a wrong step because life will eventually get you to the steps you need to be taking. They're all, as long as you're learning from the steps that you're taking, I don't Mm -hmm. think, like you said, I don't think you can really go wrong um, in, in, in processing and internalizing the steps that you're taking to, to be present in, in the steps that you're taking and not allow yourself to miss out on, on the journey that you're also going on while helping others and reaching out to others and their walks in life as well to be a present player in 
in your experiences, I think is really important. So Nicole, I really appreciate you sharing all of this. And I hope that your organization continues to flourish and that more girls and women that they learn more about what you do and can find healing and restoration in those spaces, connect with more women like them and be able to take all the keys that they collect in this experience and go out into the world and unlock so many other doors as well. So um, really appreciate what you do. How can people either find you on social media or email you, learn more about your um, nonprofit and how they can even contribute to, to what you have as well as find your book? Yes. So um, on social media, I'm Nicole Lim, N-I-K-O-L-E. Um, and my book is called Liberation is Here, available anywhere books are sold. Um, and our nonprofit is called Freely in Hope. And you can find us on all socials at Freely in Hope. The best way to get involved is by joining our Hope Circle. And that is a community of Members who believe in holistic support for survivors will allow them to pursue their dreams and become leaders and liberators in their own communities. Um, and so what Hope Circle members do is they provide um, monthly support that literally encircles our scholars with the support that they need to thrive. And we have quarterly calls um, with our scholars in Kenya and Zambia to talk about what they've learned over the quarter, what they're growing in, and our Hope Circle members have a chance to engage in conversation with them. Um, so again, it's kind of what you were saying earlier about bridging stories and bridging connections from all around the world in mutual support and uplifting for um, our survivors of sexual violence. Um, we believe that survivors have the potential to become the most powerful liberators in our world. And by joining Hope Circle, um, you're supporting that process. So you can find that at freelyandhope.org slash Hope Circle. I like that. Guys, please get involved. Look them up and follow Nicole on socials as well. I think what she's doing is really amazing. And it's eye-opening for those of you who may not have realized that this is happening in different parts of the world and the extent of which the sexual violence is happening against women and young women across the world. It's it's good to be informed about these things and to kind of get your feet wet in understanding what what is going on, but also what you can do to support and help those who need it. Mm -hmm. So absolutely check them out and get her book and follow her on her socials. Thank you guys so much for tuning in in today's episode. If you guys have any questions, any future topics that you want to address, please send them my way. I'm at First Basel on social media and you can always text me at 859-800-3396 if you want to text me your questions or comments, things like that as well. And keep looking out for all the different transitions. You guys already know that I'm in the process of rebranding and kind of going through my own personal transition, if you will, with careers and things like that. And so um, keep looking out for those changes on social media and with my website and, and things like that. Um, but I really appreciate all of you guys for listening to these episodes. It's been 
a great journey. And of course, as you can tell, we always have someone really interesting on the show to hear their stories and learn from. And literally just like you guys, I'm learning just as much as you guys are. And so it's really eye-opening and life transformative for me as well. So thank you guys again for listening and hope to hear from you guys soon. We'll be back next week. Nicole, thank you so much. And I'm so glad Kevin connected us. He's a smart guy. He's a smart guy. (laughs) You're a smart guy, Kevin. Thanks, Candice. (laughs) Thank you, Nicole. We'll talk soon. All right. Bye. Bye.